Welcome to Line of Credit, a podcast by Merrick's Capital, where we bring you insights from across the private credit space in agriculture, commercial real estate, infrastructure, energy, and more. Your host is Adrian Redlick, Executive Chairman and Chief Investment Officer at Merrick's Capital. This episode, Adrian speaks with Anthony Fellows, CEO of Harmony Agriculture and Food Company. Hi, everyone. I'm Adrian Redlick, the Chief Investment Officer of Merrick's Capital. Welcome to Line of Credit, our fifth episode. And today, I'm excited to be chatting with Anthony Fellows, who's the CEO of Harmony. Harmony's a partner of us um, here at Merrick's Capital. And welcome, Anthony. Yeah, no, thank you, Adrian. It's very good to be here. And so today, I think we've got some really interesting ground to cover. You know, Harmony is one of Australia's biggest Wagyu producers, you know, specialised beef products, exports the products all around the world through a really specialised supply chain. But not only do I want to hear about Harmony today, but Anthony's got a very long history in the cattle industry, beef industry, and in particularly exporting to China and other places. Maybe, Anthony, you want to kick off, give us a little bit of your background. Thanks, Adrian. Originally, um, as, a, as a long-term basis, I, I come from the pastoral areas of Western Australia. Great-grandfather there started in 1888 out from what most people know as the Mekathara area, which is referred to as the Murchison. That's where our family developed and, and grew, and, and obviously my, my initial livestock exposure came from, from those sorts of environments, which is, which is a far cry from, from where I am today. In, in the mid early 2000s, I, I did become involved with, with Wellard Rural Exports, who, who many people know as one of Australia's largest exporters of, of livestock around the world, and obviously gained a, a, an insight into and a, and a desire to remain involved in the international trading of, of livestock and meats, commodities in general, probably. We left, I, I left Wellard's in 2010-11, um, in and Following leaving Wellards in 2011, another business partner and myself took over an existing business known as Central Pacific Livestock. And that business was so focused very much on continuing to do what I'd done at Wellards, which was exporting mainly high-value breeding cattle from Australia, New Zealand and the USA into China, Russia, Kazakhstan and Turkey. That was a very exciting business and we enjoyed it immensely. The problem we faced as we went into 2014 and 15, two or three years into the business itself, was the fact that it it is a high-risk business. We were basically betting everything on black every time we did a shipment. Shipments in those days were valued at about 15 million US dollars. If everything went well, we made a profit. If a minor thing went wrong, we lost money, but we always had the risk of losing everything. We, We needed to diversify our base. And given a, a lot of our business activity was in China, and I had a lot of exposure to China when I was with Wellard as well, we looked to some of our relationships in China to, to explore the potential to, to have a, a better business in Australia with a Chinese business partner. We were lucky enough to find that person, and in, in 2016, we, we started to form what became Harmony Agricultural Food and, and that company itself grew from, from 2016 onwards with both Australian shareholders and a Chinese shareholder slash investor. It had great aspirations. Unfortunately, however, our aspirations probably exceeded our abilities. And in hindsight, I can say that with, with a, um, a degree of honesty because of the fact that we face the challenge that many businesses do face, that with very strong growth, 
we actually found that, that we were unable to generate the cash flow to support the growth which was already in place. And, and that obviously caused the business a, a high degree of stress. 2018-19, we actually then shed the, the live export sector side of it. Um, we closed down the live export businesses. We closed down our, our shipping business. The company at that stage actually had control of two livestock vessels. We, we, we unloaded them, so to speak. We also brought the business back to focus very much on branded meat production, and in, in particular, the, the production of, of Wagyu meats. And we focused our attention then on actually setting ourselves up as a, as a specialist premium branded meat company. And that's that occurred in late 2018-19. Obviously, as you and, and many people that listen to this would be aware that the Harmony name was infamous for a little while there because whilst we had taken the steps to, to reset the business, we hadn't necessarily dealt with, with all our own internal issues um, in regards to communication, understanding, trust, efficiency, and that side of things, our culture. And also, we hadn't really dealt with the overall limitations of cash flow and and the availability of, of getting working capital through the, the normal banking sector, through our normal banking lines. And as you, as obviously you're aware, we, we then tipped into liquidation and receivership in, in August 2019. That that was obviously a very humbling experience and a, and a, a a great learning curve for myself as CEO at the time because of the fact it's a it's the most outright blatant demonstration of a failure of a strategy that you can have to, to have a liquidation order placed upon your company. We didn't see that as the end of the story so much as we saw it as a the fact that we needed to deal with what had gone wrong and move forward and most of the other Australian partners left the business at that stage. I remained with it and re-established better communications with my Chinese shareholder and also started to redevelop an understanding between the two of us to get our trust levels back to where they had to be, which which came about purely from better communications. I, I have a specialist person who works with me now who's a doctorate in cross-cultural relations between Australia and China, and, and she spends a lot of time in ensuring I fully understand what my Chinese shareholder wants, and, and likewise, she ensures he fully understands where we're up to. We therefore, within a matter of three months after going into liquidation receivership, were taking steps to come out of that process. Unfortunately, as soon as we had started to take the steps to come out of it and, and start to actually divert some funds into the business, it made it very hard for us to negotiate with our our core provider at that stage in, in anything like a commercial manner that, that many other businesses in liquidation would do, as in buying a portion of the debt, negotiating the final settlements, etc. What it meant was we actually had to, to find every single cent that was owed to that debt provider. And that itself was was a challenging environment to act in. Um, obviously, we had had plans on bringing significant funds out of China, but shortly after this all commenced, obviously, everybody's aware COVID, COVID started. And, and with the onset of COVID, that obviously locked China down. It made it very difficult to get funds out of China. So we were able to get a fair degree of funding out of China, but we still need a significant debt package in Australia to be able to bring this business out of receivership. And the COVID environment obviously delayed that. It took us 18 months to, to come out of receivership, which is a, is a very long period of time for any business, particularly an agricultural business, to be within a liquidation order or receivership process. And obviously, as, as you're aware, we, we bought the business out with a debt funding package from Merricks. At the time, we, we had four four term sheets on the table and 
I've, I've been very open with a number of people. The Merrick's package definitely wasn't the cheapest option that was on the table, but it was essential for me that having been through the issues we'd been through before and having been through those issues with the mainstream bank that failed to be able to understand the nuances of our business when when the situations are tough, that when, when things are good, mainstream banks are able to, to have good understanding of what's occurring, but obviously when things go bad and when situations are highly stressed, they generally don't have the day-to-day experience within those particular businesses to, to really offer the support. And the reason we ended up moving with Merricks over the, the other three alternates, as I said, even though the, the, the cost was different, was the fact that the Merricks background in commodities and the, the background of the, the, the individuals involved in the agricultural side of your business all had very high degrees of practical experience and understanding which meant that when we then negotiated the product as such, we were able to negotiate a product which was actually fit for purpose for us. And and that's probably the, the greatest thing that helped us move forward to where we are today. Yeah, there's a lot to to unpack there, Anthony. It's been, you know, it's no doubt described as a, a tough journey you know, over the last 10, 15 years, not only for you, but for the likes of Wellards, obviously, been a listed company and people have seen the sector go through the the machinations but i think yeah you know, what you're describing is is really a business type that's not necessarily suited to the banking sector and, and the rules that APRA apply and alternate funding can play a strong role, which we'll, we'll talk more of but i, I want to kind of go back a little bit i was listening to you talk about your your family's history in the far 1888. I think we first met, was, I don't think I actually met you, I met your son Patrick originally during the receivership of uh, Carpenter or Carpenteria in turn. Carp- Carpenter Ag, yeah. Yeah, Carpenter Ag. And that was back, well, I'd guess, I'd say, what, 2014? Or I'd say, yes, time? I'd say it's 2014. Yeah, so Carpenter Ag was a Asian-owned exporter of dairy heifers that got stuck with boatloads of shipments when China sort of shut down some of the, the exports and Merricks went in and, and sort of bought the debt and the cattle off the receivers and then sold them to yourselves and some, some other people. And that was, I guess, when we first became aware of your business and the relationship. But more importantly, your ability in difficult times, I think, to, to move cattle through those those supply chain and the logistics. And, and I think it's important, you know, one of the things we always say to all our investors is it's easy to lend money. You know, the challenges in our business is making sure we get people through the other side and, and get the money back. And so we generally don't lend to areas that we couldn't, you know, we don't feel like we could step in and, and work with people to actually run their businesses and support them through that that process, which I think is is key. Um, so, you know, a couple of things I think that people are going to really be interested with your, your business today. It's, it's as it operates today, highly profitable business, um, come out the other side. It's, it's pretty unique. Um, maybe you just want to give a, the listeners a bit of insight. What is Harmony today? How many head of cattle, the feedlots that you're running, different products you're producing? Today, as I said a minute ago, Harmony is a, is a specialist premium branded meat business. And what, what's that mean? To us, it means that we actually we produce about 4,500 metric tonnes of saleable product per, per year, which is sold into 14 global markets, including the Australian domestic market. Obviously, the, the premium markets there or the principal markets by volume are China, Korea, 
USA, Canada, and the Middle East, and then a, a series of other secondary markets. To actually deliver that, that volume of meat, it does take a, a degree of planning. It, it takes a lot of discipline, and it also takes a very strong um, operational presence and a process, because in, 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 at times we can think about 4,500 metric tonnes, and, and you think about from a, from a wheat or a grain perspective, that's not a lot of tonnage. From our perspective, it's 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 basically ninety thousand kilos of, of saleable product produced every week, which which come from approximately two hundred and ninety head of wagyu that are processed each week, and that's that's an ongoing basis. We 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 are well and truly an industrial type process. Every week we we process on a Friday, we bone on a Monday. The products are either dispersed and loaded out later that week or they go into storage to, to accumulate for a container to go the following week or week thereafter. There, there's no stopping the train these days now we're started because our clients globally also depend upon us to have continuity of supply. A premium product like this, the, the true values are obtained by ensuring that you are delivered to the highest possible market at the time that they need it most because that's when they can pay the best value. Um, it's, it, it has to be treated in that manner to extract the right values. So what what products are you, what brands are your products selling onto yeah. and in which market? Yeah, current, currently the, the, the flagship brand of, of the Wagyu side is, is Black Opal. And then we, we have a secondary brand, which is called Omino. The, the reason we do the two brands is, is primary to ensure that we, we can have dual markets or dual access in markets without cannibalizing ourselves. So China, for example, we have one principal partner there that works with Black Opal. Our other partner works with Omino. In Korea, our main partner works with Omino and our secondary partner works with Black Opal. USA is similar to that. And what it allows us to do is to to maximize our, our market presence, get our allocation per geographic market in balance for us, yet it means that we can ensure that one relationship is not competing with another relationship at a brand level. They, they may compete as, as competitors in a market, but as far as the market's concerned, Omino is competing with Black Opal or Black Opal against Omino. The, the thing that we can never afford, and this is no different for any, any company that, that deals in this space, is you can't ever afford to have your brand competing against itself in, in the same market. Otherwise, you, you start to devalue your brand as such. And it's a high-value brand. You know, the, the cattle themselves, if we sort of bring it back to a per-head basis, cattle prices have gone ballistic, to say the least, over the last three, four years. Mm. But while you steer sort of fully grown out now is is sort of heading to, uh, what, seven, eight, nine thousand. 9,000? Yeah, we, we um, our, our ballpark value for an animal today is about seven thousand dollars and i think so our, that's, that's probably double yeah traditional black angus steer yeah or more than double correct um just to give listeners sort of the, the sense and and in terms of uh, a kilo of, of prime meat at the other end if you're buying the product off the shelf then you're, you're probably dealing in that 70 to 120 dollar type range i did see some some black opal hamburger patties for sale in Dubai three weeks ago, and they were working at they were at thirty eight dollars fifty a kilo Aussie, which I thought wasn't too bad for a hamburger patty on a supermarket shelf. 
we have had some discussions in our credit committee meetings that people aren't biased um, here in terms of declaring conflict of interest because we do get the odd prime piece of meat turn up here in the, the Merrick's office and so it is a, a fringe benefit that we have had. It's it's truly exceptional and, and certainly well sought after when you're kind enough to, to deliver a piece. But, um, yeah, it's really interesting if we go back to the asset base of the, the business, you know, the asset base is many times the level of debt that you you have. And it was even when you went into receivership with the, the NAB going way back. But yet having lots of asset coverage in Bankland doesn't necessarily cut it. You know, it's in terms, it's the working capital and the cash flow, right, to keep that whole machine working. You know, you've got cattle on, on feed what, for four or 500 days. Correct. Um, and to keep everything moving and, and the supply chain into China in particular takes, you have to carry that. And Adrian, that probably for me personally was, it was the most frustrating part of about going into liquidation receivership was that we knew we had a good business. We just couldn't get enough working capital out of our, our structures and the the conventional structures that come from the conventional banks just aren't flexible enough for a business like this. And so it, it just, we just ran out of cash. It robbed us of that. And the the exciting thing which I've found over the, the last 18 months since we've come out of the receivership liquidation is that working with the, the funding provided by the Merrick structure in what really is an extremely simple manner um, in a simple fashion actually enable, enables us to run the business properly, maximising our time on on the decisions that are important for the business because our, our funding, our compliance and, and all of the side, the, the back room about where the finance comes from is a, is a very simple structure. And I see that going forward as why the, the likes of a Merrick's type business is going to have an increasing place in agricultural funding over the next decades ahead of us because agriculture is is becoming more and more dynamic and the nature of that i think will actually limit where traditional banking sits as a provider of funding they may still be there for the provision of core debt for against land assets etc etc but for a business like ours 80 85 of our asset value is is our is our cattle and, and our land, whilst our land values are, are not insignificant, we don't wish to own $100 million worth of land today because that doesn't make us the money. We, we need to own our cattle. And as we grow, um, we'll be wanting to increase our, our ownership and our asset value of cattle, not necessarily increase our ownership and asset value of land. And on that basis, it'll, it'll make it almost impossible, I think, for a mainstream bank to ever give us the the flexibility and the the functionality of debt funding or working capital funding that, that we require as a business. And there'll be more agricultural businesses like us as the cost of land increases and the nature of agriculture has changed so much. I think for listeners at the core of that is the need by banks under current APRA regulation, so that the regulator of, of banks is that the constant need for you to run fairly wide margin um, in terms of profitability at all times and not so much regard for the asset base, whereas obviously we have the flexibility with unlevered balance sheets. Banks are highly levered, so they need to you know, maintain their own cash flow. For us, it's more about looking at your asset base, which, as I said, I think it's you know, multiples of our debt. So there's not a lot of risk for investors you know, who are in our funds who are supporting you, but it gives you the, the flexibility that 
looking at those that asset base gives lots of debt coverage, but it doesn't always squeeze the cash flow at the inappropriate times. And I, I think that's hopefully giving you an advantage, you know, when others are potentially being squeezed through supply chain and logistics or feed price, you're in a in a place to to sail through that to a degree. Yeah, no, I would agree. And the last eighteen months, two years, there's been a lot of publicity about how how good it's been for agriculture. Grain prices are at, at high levels. Livestock prices are at record levels, and there's been much talk about them resetting, but they haven't really reset much yet. And I don't I don't know if they ever will again. Not not to the degree they ever were. And what that does, though, in that sort of environment for a business like ours that that works well up the supply chain. It actually presents us some, some significant challenges because all of our input costs coming in are significantly higher than what they were previously. And the ability to work with Merix and ensure that Merix is understanding of the environment we're in has actually meant we could run the business properly. Whereas I know that with the caveats that were in place previously with the NAB and the and the form of base borrowing facility we had, those sorts of changes in the in the underlying base of price and cost would actually have caused us a number of issues had we been on a normal NAB facility today. So yeah, once again, it's the the, the pure functionality of this form of private debt that that is so much more workable. Yeah, no doubt we're charging more for the the privilege, as you often remind us, which is fair enough. But I think what it means is yeah, because we write. You know, 30, 40, maybe 45 loans a year, we treat them all as almost like a private assessment of each business. Like we, you know, we look at them all as how we would act when we own them. So, you know, in fairness to the banks who are obviously trying to pump out a lot of business across you know, a massive platform, they can't go, you know, the deep understanding. You know, we obviously get paid to have a deep understanding. Just thought we might change tack a, a little because I think you know, you're sitting on on top of sort of an information supply chain as much as a physical supply chain at the moment, which is really intriguing to everyone. You know, your business sources you know, premium calves from you know, one of the best genetic pools in, in Australia, which is key. You then feed those cattle in a couple of feedlots in southern New South Wales, Northern Vic and elsewhere, and then process them you know, all through down through O'Connor's and then, you know, some domestic but mainly on ships. It's, in theory, a simple supply chain, but the complexities of, as you've explained to me in recent times, have become, you know, much more challenging. And I think everyone's, you know, sort of intrigued to hear is how is that supply chain easing post-COVID has, or um, is that a bit of fiction? Yeah, I think it, I think it hasn't eased yet. I, I would admit that we all thought as we came out of COVID and all the lockdowns around Australia lifted and globally we saw them lift, we, we had thought then that life would return to normal, for want of a better term. It hasn't really happened. What I refer to as the international supply chain, the engine of it is, is international logistics, which is basically sea freight. And the, the sea freight engine was broken in early 2020 when China first went into its COVID lockdowns. And, and we had the, the movement of, of freight between, the, let's term it, the China and the USA, that, that major movement there of, of freight in each direction basically stopped. And, and it started to get the movement of ships and containers out of balance. That was further exasperated then by the, the impact of, of COVID and, and the ability for ships to change crews and, and that side of things, which we actually then started to see shipping become more and more delayed 
we have an in-house joke which everybody shares that's to do with international shipping that ships always run late they never run early but late used to mean two or three days today 12 months post-covid as such the, the international logistics engine is still broken. Ships are, are regularly several several days late, seven, ten days late. And we're, we're, we're then having issues as well. That obviously, China itself is still suffering some, some lockdown-type issues and various commercial delays. We're actually having situations where you've got containers on vessels going to China, which when they've left Australia, you're then notified the vessels are not actually going to go to the port that it's, it was contracted to go to it but your container will be offloaded in a, in a different port. So those sorts of, of logistical challenges take some holding onto, and they don't come without cost. It, it obviously um, impacts cash flows because basically so many of the payments to some one way or other are, are based upon delivery, and they also cause inefficiency, and, and not only for ourselves, they're causing inefficiency for, for freight companies in Australia, the ground transporters, the they, they cause inefficiencies for ourselves and O'Connors purely because of the fact that we're operating as a, a service client there. We're utilising their infrastructure and it's a fairly finely tuned machine. And if our shipments are delayed because a vessel hasn't arrived, the O'Connors plant doesn't stop and wait because we've still got the chillers are full, et cetera, et cetera. So what we find is this overall delay and disruption to international logistics just flows back down through the supply chain right through all the production side. And what does that mean? Does that mean you have to carry more stock, allow more time? It, it means you've got to reset your your expectations of your working capital cycle or your trade trade cycle. And we, we used to run, a, it was a very tight little cycle that would have full payment for anything going to China with, within about 21 days of, of the production date that loaded that container and then the domestics and other markets were, were similar or, or better than that. However, your final invoicing can't actually be be put in motion until you've got health certificates that mean that has to be on the vessel to get a health certificate. So what we've seen happen here is that China's stretched out and I use China as an example. It's not just the China market. I don't want to be seen to be negative on the China side, but China's stretched out now that it may be 35 days in general because you're, you're having to work in some extra tolerances. Getting to the Middle East isn't as easy as what it used to be. Air freight side's not as easy. It's definitely meant that our, our trade debtors that at an end-of-month scenario probably used to run at about 4 million, 4.5 mil at any one time. We're sitting about 2 or $2.5 million higher than that right now. Their trade debtors these days are running along at 6 or 6.5, 6.7 million, which once again ties up working capital. Um, and that's that's not there because any of our clients have asked for extended terms, etc. It's just there as a, a function of the disruption to the ability to actually deliver product. And of course, that's that's on top of paying double for grain compared to three, four years ago, other input costs, correct, and the like. So you're carrying costs, and and most importantly, your carbs that you buy and, and bring into your system, yeah, are double, yeah, in value. So everything's doubled, precisely. And working capital, and I think ship. we can't we can't walk away or, or or fail to acknowledge that we have been able to achieve, and and all all participants in the Wagyu area have, have done this we've all seen our our sale prices have moved up we've managed sure. to leverage leverage well there but like everything you can't pass all your problems on to your, your customer prop from the outside profitability looks extremely good to most people right compared to where we've been in 
in different cycles, I guess you just need a lot more money to be able to carry things through and, and deliver it. Correct. And and that's that's really the crux of, of this business is that at times I've, I've had discussions with people that say, well, you know, what, what's to stop somebody firing up tomorrow to be a competitor of yours? All it takes is a checkbook and they can be there and, and I do smile because all it does take is a checkbook but it's a pretty big one today. And I know what it cost us to try and get this business up and running to the scale that we're at now back in the in 2018 for the Wagyu side of it. It was it was 30-odd million dollars then, and today it's it, it'll be twice that plus. To a degree, for me, it's almost it's essential that we protect what we have and grow what we have because I know you could never afford to start it again. With the, with the environment that we're in right now. You're probably being a little bit modest in saying it just takes money. You know, the history of uh, the supply chain in terms of the right genetics, how to grow out an animal appropriately. And I know even since the time you've been with us as a, as a partner, the movements you know, in terms of your cattle, the way they're killed, stored, processed has changed your marbling score and quality, which has really moved your brand to a, a different level. I mean, that's that's obviously hard one. Lots of learning lessons, even though you'd been doing this for a long time already before. I, I think so, yeah. And you have to you have to look for all of those little one percenters. People people so often say it's the one percenters we have to find, but but actually making statements like that and finding them are, are vastly different. And and we do look and and challenge ourselves internally on on that. It's part of the as I said at the start, the humbling process about beating liquidation receivership. There's, as a team, we remained intact right through that process. So we, we've had our good days and our bad days, and, and we've had some pretty challenging times emotionally sitting around a table working out how forward, how we go forward. But it's also meant as a group, there's no secrets. There's there's no protected species in our business. We can speak very frankly and openly, and we look for every single opportunity from the, the day we're buying an animal or before we buy it how we, we run our feedlots, how we look for extract value, how we make decisions about who we're going to work with. And you you referenced there, we, we made a move to O'Connor's at Pakenham, which was a, a, a quite an expensive process to do, to change processor for a product like ours. But we needed to ensure that we were, we were processing an animal or our animal at a plant that had the ability to actually give us the, the quality of production we needed to extract the absolute best price for our product. And what we found with, with O'Connor's as such is exactly that. It's a, it's a very specialist plant, very tightly run, and we're able to achieve the, the maximum return because we're, we're producing a maximum, a, a premium product to the best possible quality. And that then flows through in our, our trucking companies, flows through in how we run our feedlots and and everything. You, you just must concentrate on doing everything to the absolute nth degree. And then also continuing to question and challenge yourself internally about what can we do better and what can we do differently. One of the things that we often look at when we're examining a loan that's currently in receipt, you know, a borrower that's in receivership, receivership, I should say, and they're going to come out, one of the things that's always pitched to us is if they can return to a more stable, normal environment, their business operates a lot better, gains a lot more efficiencies. And that's often a difficult decision for us to make, those that can and, and can't. Um, clearly, in hindsight, you know, backing Harmony, you guys, with some stability and not focusing on you know, that squeeze of working capital and having to deal with that, that process, really able to, to streamline your uh, operating platform, which is is key, but it's not always the case. 
Um, so it's, uh, but you're right, it always comes down to people, like all, all good businesses. I think it's, it's worth saying there too, Adrian, that having come out of receivership, the first 12, even 18 months is actually a lot more challenging than many people would think. And, and it's probably the fundamental flaw in the system still because in order to, to get that liquidation order lifted, of which you and your team are acutely aware, numerous trips to courts to, to be able to prove our, our solvency, to be able to prove our business plan was, was factual and, and solid and required support from yourselves to achieve all of that. We, we had to prove a level of solvency in, in 2021 that was far above the solvency of most other businesses in Australia in that state with COVID, et cetera, et cetera. But then as soon as you come out of that liquidation order and you've actually proved that you're solvent, you've proved you've got your funding, the, the general business community, a lot of the, the, the big end of town, is constrained by the same sorts of rules, regulations and risk adverse nature and tendencies that the big banks do that actually means that then they're reluctant to trade a company that's just come out of receivership. It, it's almost a double-edged sword that the, the best business can come out of receivership, but the, the pure nature of commercial transactions may mean they can't get the day-to-day support from the business community that lets them stay out of receivership. Obviously, we were, we've, we've been lucky that, that we've got some very strong relationships and we've, we've backed ourselves very strongly with various parties to ensure that no one's let down. Um, and we've never let anyone down even prior to that. But we've been able to move forward, but it's definitely been challenging because of the fact that you're, in these first 18, 24 months, you're unable to access the, the normal sort of trade terms that a, a business normally has, whether they're solvent, insolvent, stressed or, or not. It's one of the interesting things as a, a lender for a business coming out of liquidation or receivership is that you've often got a business that, as you say, is in much stronger position than many other in its industry because the courts and the review force it to be so. So it's actually quite good credit, ironically, at, at that point. But the one piece that I know we had to lean in with you is you know, the sort of letters of reference and support to the trade. You know, part of our commitment to the, the partnership is, is letting everyone know that you're well-funded and to get on with it. Yeah, that's part of the, the collective the collective journey. I'm not sure banks are always well positioned to do that because I think post Royal Commission and, and other um, different inquiries, they've got so many elements of compliance and, and they're hamstrung to actually, even if the people want to support their business partners, they're not allowed to sometimes. No, I, I would agree with that. You know, I've in the course of this discussion, I've, I've made a, a fair few negative comments about mainstream banks and that's, that's not anything against the people that I've worked with in NAB and, and, and other mainstream banks, but particularly NAB. You know, the actual individuals are as supportive and understanding of business as, as most people. It's quite quite similar to some of your people. Maybe not the right level of understanding of our, our particular business, but, but they're supportive. But they've just got a, such a framework built around them now that prohibits them even moving an inch to the left or inch to the right to, to actually assist. So... Yeah, the, the APRA type environment at post Royal Commission, it's just a it's such a, a constrained and risk adverse environment now that it's it's very difficult for them to be help us even if they want to. I think people at APRA would be probably listening to this and say, Yes, this is what we want. We actually want banks that are highly leveraged and holding the country's deposits to be quite constrained and we want the capital formation of non bank lending and other types of investors such as big super funds to be providing an alternative for businesses 
that have to ride the bumps of commodity cycles and the like. So ironically, they'd all be standing back and saying that's a win, but it's inflicted a hell of a lot of pain on lots of people as we make this transition, um, whether it be in commercial real estate or agriculture or particularly trade finance at the moment. And maybe that's something we can yeah, we can finish up talking about China in particular because it's an area whenever we talk about Harmony as a partner of borrower, they're all interested you know, in the sense of how easy is it to operate and trade in China these days. Obviously, you've got a long history and you know, you've, you've seen the, the good and the, the very ugly, which you might want to touch on in, in China when trade doesn't go so right. But how easy is it these days to ship product in, get paid? I think the main that the main thing is that China is China, and it's a very simple statement to say that, but, but what do I mean by it? I mean by the fact that you have to accept that China is always going to be China. China's never going to become any more Western than what it is today, and the way we do business in Australia and the rules that we operate by, both the, the regulatory rules and, and just the, the general values we operate under, are, are different to, to how China operates, very different culture. And I think if you if you ensure that you take all possible steps to understand exactly what you are discussing in China with, with your trade partner, exactly the terms, how it's going to be documented, the actual timings and the flows, and understand that fully, trade with China can be not really any more complex than any other country outside of Australia. Where it where it breaks down to degrees is where there is a a lack of effective communications um, and a lack of transparency. We we've always acknowledged that that China is a, a key market for the world. It, it it drives the world. Its its volume, its consumption, so high that everything else will be influenced by China. So you need to be part of it. And what we find today is that the documentary process is is fairly stable. The payment cycles coming out of China, so long as you meet their particular requirements, are, are stable, are dependable. What we, we always need to be aware of is that there is that underlying political risk with China at any one time, that the, the Chinese government can seek to influence the effects of export or import upon their country in a, in a way that's more proactive or more hands-on than what we see in a Western-type democracy. And and therefore, what we tend to do is is always make sure that we're aware of that, which is why we, we like to say that we have a, a China first but a global focus. My, my major partner is a, is a Chinese company, so therefore we have a China, China first. But the focus has to be global, and we have a quite disciplined approach to the allocation of product to different markets to to manage that geopolitical type risk and the possible impacts of that upon our trade and our working capital, et cetera, should we suffer a, a, a political type trade issue. We, we don't just take that view with China, we take it with, with all of our markets and what we try and do is have a, a, an underlying suite of allocations to, to various markets to ensure that we can, we can ride whatever bumps come our way. I, I think long term, China's always going to be important for Australia purely because of the fact that, that they are such a consumer of commodities and, and Australia is a producer of commodities. At the end of the day, that's what it's all about. What we as, as, as a company that trades into China or trades into other global markets always need to be aware of is that we are 
by the nature of what we do in exporting and international trade, we are dealing with different cultures and different markets. And you must always put yourself in the place of your your business partner in that international market and understand the constraints that they work under, understand the, the legal systems and processes they work under, and, and be fully cognizant of that so that you can better understand your own risks because you can't necessarily expect them to do it our way because it's, it's their market. They've got the gold. They make the rules. It's essential that you actually understand how you're operating within their market. And if you do that properly, then you won't get caught. You don't. If you yeah, don't do it, you will get caught. It's, yeah, clearly critical. It's not the way that, I guess, a US-led West has always, has always operated. But today, despite some of the logistics challenges you talked about, uh, it continues to be a, a premium market for high-end products. And whilst the intensity of demand for things like steel may slow as they urbanise, it looks in the agri-space, food space, where, you know, with the, the growth of consumerisation, it's only going to grow as an important market, not shrink. And, and I think, um, Adrian, there's a, I saw a statistic just in the last couple of days, which indicates that the the export of Australian beef products to China, not just our premium product, but Australian beef products in general, um, for the month of August is the highest monthly export level ever. So even whilst we've talked about all sorts of issues with the trade under stress, with, with some plants losing their China access and the, the reduction of Australian exports to China, et cetera, et cetera, I, I think we're, we're well-placed. Um, we, we definitely saw China beef exports drop back from some of the highs, but but I think the fact that August has now reached an all-time monthly high would indicate that our our trade relationship with China is, is very strong again and, and probably always has been. If you take out some of the media noise and the political noise, it's the commercial relationships that really underpin all of this and, and I think the commercial relationships are probably as strong today as, as they've been. Mm, with that weakening Aussie dollar as well, Obviously, that's driving profitability. And for those that, that can't see, uh, Ant does have a big smile on his face. As I mentioned, the weak Aussie dollar, it's clearly a, a driver of profitability. But, you know, record volumes, good margin. It's been a, a great turnaround story in terms of the perception from the outside of, of what was going on at Harmony. I guess we had the luxury of, of some being seeing some well-thought-out plans and a significant asset base. So, been in a great position to turn things around. Um, so thanks for the, the time today, Anthony. We uh, enjoy our partnership. We certainly, as I say, the team enjoys some of the, the spoils. They're a bit different to some of our other partners and, and borrowers. But um, congratulations on what's been a hard one but well-deserved outcome to, to get Harmony back to a highly successful business. No worries. And, and thank you for the time. And and obviously, Adrian, yeah, we, we appreciate the support for Merrick's and, and uh very appreciative of of what Merrick's offers, not only our company, but and we're quite vocal about it. I believe it offers a, a degree of support to agriculture in general that is needed and and is well well fits. Thanks, Anthony. It sounds like a bit of a mutual admiration club to our listeners. It's a bit sycophantic, but it's part of the uh, the enjoyable part of the journey here. That if we can solve problems together, it's it is some fun. Thanks for your time today. No worries. Thank you. Merrix Capital is an Australian fund manager delivering a truly differentiated multi-strategy offering with extensive investment capability and global experience spanning multiple asset classes. To learn more about Merrix Capital, head to www.merrickscapital.com.